Hello, I'm Anne Mossop, Sydney Writers' Festival Artistic Director. We hope you enjoy this episode from our podcast program. Hello, my name is Evelyn Araluen and it is my protocol and absolute pleasure to acknowledge today that we are meeting on the lands of the Gadigal peoples of the Eora Nation. This is their country that they have cared for since time immemorial and they will always continue to care for it and be custodians of that country. We're very lucky to be guests here and I would also like to extend that acknowledgement to the Aboriginal community of Redfern and Waterloo and their ongoing fight for sovereignty and for the acknowledgement of their history and their political struggle in this area against gentrification, against the ongoing processes of colonisation. Uh, and hello and um, also acknowledging the country that everybody has uh, travelled from today to meet with us and to our live and local audience who are Zooming in, um, videoing in, uh, hello to you and um, hello to the country that you are all on. So, yeah, supporting libraries around the country. We love that. Um, but you're not here for me, so I'm going to stop talking. Um, we're going to have a really exciting yarn today uh, and I would like you all to just sort of kick us off by saying hello to Maxine Beniba-Clark and Omar Musa. I'm going to do the... Yeah. Just so you all know you're in the right room, I'm going to do the incredibly embarrassing thing of reading out their bios so we can just verify if we've got the right audience. Maxine Beniba-Clark is the author of the Victorian Premier's Literary Award-winning poetry collection, Carrying the World, an ABN Indie Award-winning short fiction collection, Foreign Soil, the critically acclaimed childhood memoir, The Hate Race, the Boston Globe slash Horn Prize-winning picture book, The Patchwork Bike, and several other books for adults and children. How Decent Folk Behave, is her fourth poetry collection. So, hello, very exciting to have you here. And sorry to do this to you, Omar. Omar Musa is a Malaysian-Australian author, artist and poet from Queanbeyan, Australia. He's released three poetry books, including Parang and Mil Fiori, four hip-hop records written an acclaimed one-man play since Ali died and received a standing ovation at TEDx Sydney at the Sydney Opera House. Let's see if we can follow that one up with another standing ovation here. We'll give it a go. His debut novel, Here Come the Dogs, was published in 2014 and was long listed for the International Dublin Literary Award. That's quite flash, just letting you know. Um, and the Miles Franklin Award. That's also quite flash. Um, Musa was named one of the Sydney Morning Herald's Young Novelist of the Year in 2015. And we are talking about Killanova and how decent folk behave today. So you're in the right spot. We're good. We're going to talk about poetry. Yes. Excellent. If you weren't in the correct venue, you are not allowed to leave anymore. Sorry about that. So, um, what I would like us to just sort of kick off with is I want to hear from both of you about uh, these works, about how you kind of came to the process of putting them together, um, how you understand them and how you would personally sort of define and frame them. Um, and I might actually start with you, Maxine. Thanks, Evelyn. Yeah, and I just want to I'm congratulate Evelyn as, Evelyn as well on her stellar prize win. Don't. Phenomenal. <laughs> I don't. I'm a fly on the wall here. I just want to hear the two of you be brilliant. Um, so, yeah, How Decent Folk Behave, um, a collection of poems. It was written across really 20, primarily across 2020, uh, 2019 and 2020. Um, and it's a collection of poems that um, contains work that some of it was written while I was uh, writing as a poet for a newspaper, The Saturday Paper, and some is uh, new work that I wrote, I guess, during that period, but that wasn't specifically um, for looking at current events. Um, and I guess, you know, I had the question of having this body of work um, that really was looking into, I think, really the most outward-looking poetry collection I'd written in terms of, you know, we were all locked in our houses. It was COVID-19 lockdown. And so what do you write about, you know, and writing about climate change, about the unfolding of the Black Lives Matter movement, about lockdown, about this generation of kids and adults that have spent time shut in, and all, all of the things that were unfolding during that time. Um, mostly written in free verse, as most of my work is. 
But, yeah, I think probably uh, the most time-specific work I've ever written in terms of, you know, I want to write about what's happening now and the things that I'm not being able to have conversations with friends and family and mm. uh, festivals and things about. Mm. It reads really interestingly in terms of, like, a sort of an annotation of this period in which so much of us were locked into these repetitive... You know, like you're you're in lockdown endlessly, and then it just means that every day is kind of like the other day, and then you you don't form new memories because there's no variation. So I'd be interested in as well if you wanted to just expand a little bit on what it's like reading this now, reading from this now, even though you know when we're not actually that far from the moment of its um, its sort of you know temporal annotation. Um, what is it like to, is it a revisiting for you? Is it stepping back into that mindset? Do you feel like things have changed already since that time that you wrote it? I think it's, it's both. You know, there's both this sense that, oh, my goodness, we're still in that moment. You know, we're still dealing with the chaos. Well, let's that find is. out what happens yeah, after yeah, today's yeah. events, shall we? But... Yeah, absolutely. And also, you know, there's a poem at the end of the book, which is probably one of the longest pieces I've ever written. It's called Fire Moves Faster. Mm. And it's a recap of the year that was 2020. And in writing that, it was kind of going through the bushfires mm. and the US election and that moment where, you know, the whole of the United States was partying in the streets and there were, you know, spontaneous flash mobs and, and um, you know, the unfolding of the Friday strike for climate. And I think writing that, it was kind of the same realisation now of how much has happened mm. in this space of time. So both time stood still because we were indoors. We felt mm. like our, you know, the... The, those small moments of our lives stood still, but yet the world kept yeah. going. You know, there were all of these really big moments that just kind of kept spiralling. Um, and so, yeah, I think it, it probably will be really interesting, you know, in five years' time, in ten years' time, looking back on it and thinking, you know, I mean, I hope that people read it and think, oh, my gosh, what was happening then? <laughs> you know, all of this has been dealt with and now we live in a utopia, you know. Um, <laughs> But it's like yeah. revisiting in their group therapy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but, yeah, it was definitely a, a different process writing mm. in this kind of catatonic locked-down state. Mm. Mm. For sure. And, Omar, you had a really quite different... You, you, you did not write this from lockdown. Um, can you tell us about how you um, put this collection together and some of the history behind, behind it? Yeah, I... Um decided to put it together early last year. Um, Maybe you were in lockdown. <laughs> I, was, I was in lockdown, but it was um, the process of it started a few years before, yeah. um, after a bit of a dark night of the soul, where I'd come to this point in my life where I realised that I hated the thing that I was supposed to love, my life's passion, mm. writing and performing. And I know we, we often, you know, as performers and writers, yeah. get to that point. Um, but I was really lost. It was incredibly confronting for me because I'd always tied my identity to that. And then suddenly, when I realised I hated it, it was as if I really, truly hated myself. And, um, and I felt very adrift. And so actually, I went back to Borneo, to um, where my father's from, and I crossed over the border from Malaysian Borneo, where he's from, into Indonesian Borneo. And I took a, um, took a boat trip up the river from the east coast, up this um, Mahakam River, which has always connected the tribes of the interior to the people of the coastline for a long, long time. And I travelled up the river on the boat, um, sleeping on the deck with all the other passengers, and I saw all sorts of great beauty, you know, the long houses that were carved um, with different types of animal spirits and whatnot. Um, I, I met all sorts of people that I had really amazing conversations with in my broken Indonesian, and, um, but also I saw all sorts of horrors and environmental destruction. Mm. You know, I saw the effects of the logging industry. I saw open-cut mines spitting the contents of the earth onto barges. Um, but I started to realise on that journey that I needed a new way to express myself, and I didn't know what that was going to be. And I saw a lot of dance while I was up the, up the river, and I thought maybe it would be something to do with that, but, you know, you guys can probably attest, having seen me on a dance floor, that I'd, I'm not bestowed with that particular gift. And, um, <laughs> and so we all I'm make like... choices about where we apply at now. Nah, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're great. You're great. <laughs> and, um, Demonstration, please. Yeah, no, definitely not. And so <laughs> I, um, I, crossed, I crossed back into Malaysian Borneo and I was hanging out at this place called the Tamparuli Living Arts Centre. And it's a place where a whole lot of punk rockers and mm. environmental activists hang out. It's quite near where my dad's from. And um, 
And the main form of um, artistic, uh, well, not the main form of artistic expression, but the main visual medium that people use uh, is woodcut prints. And mm. so they'll carve these enormous blocks of wood, uh, roll it with ink, and then press it to paper or cloth using their feet, because mm. um, that gives it extra samangat or spirit, people say. And they use these huge posters. They're almost like propaganda posters. They remind mm. me of those posters mm. from Southeast Asia. Um, and all over Latin America, um, and they protest government corruption and um, the logging industry. And so I just attended a workshop. I asked this local punk rocker called Eric Lost Control. Uh, <laughs> who, who, um, I got a new pen name. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and he and I was so nervous. I, I don't quite know why, but I was just like so nervous to try this new thing. And I went over to him and I was like, "Hey, bro, can I? I'll probably be shit at this, but like, can I give it a go?" And, and he was just like, yeah, yeah, sit down. And we just like sat down on the ground. He taught me how to use these two different carving tools, the different effects of them. And he said, what, 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 do you want, what are you going to carve? And, and he, I said, I don't know. And he was like, look, just carve what you feel, brother. Carve what you feel. And I'd spent so much time in my writing just like writing about and thinking about the horrors of, of man and toxic masculinity in Australia and racism and viol like masculine violence. And I'd always been trying to stare directly at the darkness. Mm. And I just wanted to create something beautiful with this woodcut. Mm. That's all I wanted to do. And so I just decided to carve the most beautiful thing I knew, which was a, a Bornean clouded leopard. And it was an animal that I'd never seen in real life. I'd only ever seen it in my dreams or on like YouTube videos. And they're very shy creatures. And so I carved this leopard and then it still felt like too much of a leap just to go into the visual, so I put two lines of poetry with it, and I just wrote, when the, when the loggers are away, the leopards will play. And that started this whole journey of combining visual art and woodcut prints completely unexpectedly with poetry. I know, I know this isn't the one, it isn't that one, but this is um, Omar's carving of the clouded, a clouded leopard, and I loved reading, you mentioned that kind of in the opening a bit about your process, and I loved reading about that and how that was that first image for you as well, by the way. Yeah, and it just brought this whole playfulness back, yeah. to, my, back to my creativity, you know, mm. because like after a while, especially if you've been doing this as long as we have, like, I don't know, it's, it is easy to take yourself a bit too seriously. Mm. And I'd always been able to intellectualize the thought that it's important to be playful with form and playful mm. with ideas, even if it's deadly serious. But then I'd lost that along the way. And so somehow this new form brought back mm. my playfulness and that childlike joy to writing and to creating art, and it opened up a, a wellspring of creativity and gave me access back to my poetry somehow through mm. the visual. Mm. It's like, you know, these are both incredible collections, but what I will say about the visuals in Supernova, uh, Kilanova, sorry, Supernova, it's a muse song. Um, uh, it's like nothing else you've seen before. This is a really radical and transformative thing, in, um, certainly in the poetry space. Um, but also I kind of think in this sort of whole industry, um, kind of, you know, more generally, I want to ask you, Maxine, about your interest in the visual and then I want to get you to ask that question that I interrupted you and didn't let you ask Omar, but out, out the back about the visual in his work. So you obviously, like, a big part of your creative practice as well is kid stories and um, that that has like a kind of an illustrative aspect and we weren't able to grab a copy because it's sold out. Um, but can you tell us a bit about... Yeah, yeah. so, um, yeah, it's, it's interesting that, um, you know, Omar and I both started in slam poetry, at least in terms of the literary world, and um, then our first fiction books came out at the same time and now we're kind of both doing some visual stuff. So I illustrated, have illustrated three kids' books, um, one which comes out later this year, but... The last one's called When We Say Black Lives Matter. And, um, yeah, I found it similar to Omar. I find that, at least myself, as a creator, I have to try and reinvent the wheel in some way with every project. Otherwise, it just feels like um, I lose that passion, you know, for what I'm doing. Um, and I think, you know, it's the publisher's nightmare in some ways, which yeah. is why mm. I asked Omar that question, that once you've had success in one particular area, they just want you to often replicate, you know, you've had this best-selling short fiction collection or novel or whatever it is, poetry collection, write another one, you know, because you have your audience now, we just want you to do the same thing. Um, and it's so freeing to just, you know, in my case, kind of, I'd had two kids' books published, mm -hmm. 
illustrated by other people to put my hand up and go, I want to illustrate something to which they probably all went, oh my no. God. Oh, yeah. She thinks she can illustrate now, you know. Um, three books later, it's fine, but initially, you know, is this going to be stick figures kind of thing? Um, but yeah, Nothing I found wrong that with a good same. stick figure, frankly. <laughs> um, so yeah, the question I had for Omar was about the form of this book, and I agree, um, you know, as Evelyn said, it's very Incredible. unusual to be able to get something like this published. You know, poetry is hard enough to publish that alone poetry with, mm. with woodcuts in it. So I was asking about the form, how much, the, you know, even the size of the book, the shape mm. of the book. Which is a bit, it's, it's one of those things that I'm sure you had a bit of difficulty because actually, like, for people who aren't complete publishing nerd losers, you might not really necessarily think of these things, but the width of this, I am sure they were annoyed at you because this actually would <laughs> jut out from a bookshelf and yeah. they'll be like, what are you doing to us? Yeah. We need a nice, neat pile of books for our Instagram. <laughs> yeah, yeah it, was, it was a little bit like that. I mean, my publisher at Penguin was the one who came up with the idea of me doing a book of art and poetry. So I mm. give Nikki Christo credit for that. Um, it was very early on when I'd only been doing the woodcuts for about four months mm. and I was out there, I don't know, I was just chucking them on my Instagram and whatnot. And, um, and she was like, I'd love to publish some of these one day. And I was just like, oh my God, like, I don't know what I'm doing, you know? And then years later, so yeah, last, early last year, I kind of um, was like, I wonder if she remembers that, that conversation. And then I wanted to make something that didn't just, uh, the thing Can I aim for in my work. Can you show people bits of it? Because yeah, I feel sure. like you've been looking at it and I'm like, do you not yeah. have a copy? <laughs> like, did I they don't. not give you one? I, I don't know. I always give them away. Um, the, yeah, I, I wanted something that would operate on a number of levels, yeah. um, thematically, but in terms of the art and the writing as well. Um, something that is polished to a high sheen, but has deep, um, what's the word, like perspicacity, like you can see deep into it. Mm. Um, and, and oh, no, a way I described it last night was like an iPhone, you know, they say it as a user-friendly interface and a complicated <laughs> operating system, like, yeah. sort of, like how I'm thinking about these sort of things. So I wanted it to be a really beautiful object yeah. that was sort of welcoming, because I love art books, like you were mm. talking about backstage, and I often, um, you know, I love going to galleries and getting the catalogues and, and mm. um, books on architectural jewellery, you know, stuff like mm. that, and, and the way they're designed and put together. And so I, was, I definitely had all of that in mind and so much care and attention went into the colour choices mm. and, and the design of it. Mm. Um, and it was really, it was quite terrifying actually, like once I got into it because I felt so much imposter syndrome because I don't come from... I'm not formally like I learnt on the ground in the jungle yeah. in Borneo, like smoking ciggies and carving with punk rockers, you know. Like, and so suddenly when it came to this, it was just like it was very overwhelming yeah. um, because I was I was juggling so many elements, mm. and then the poetry was a whole different thing again. Which and it is also a different direction, I think, stylistically for your poetry. And there's yeah. a few ones there that I'm like, this is feeling really like a kind of a more experimental lyric, which is really interesting to see compared to some of your previous, you know, just, just focusing it down to the language. Um, yeah, I mean, it's, um, yeah, I kind of upended my whole approach to creating art and mm. to writing, where, mm. whereas previously I'd seen it as such a solitary pursuit, yeah. um, where it was necessary basically to destroy myself to mm. create good art, you know, that mm. horrible, tortured artist bullshit. Basically, you know, I think without realising it, that's what I'd become and I'd bought into that. Yeah. And that I, you know, with each piece of myself I put there out into the world, I was diminishing and that I was willing to sacrifice my brain, my liver. Just my, pick which organs here, like my life. not the heart, but no, the, the heart, the liver, the, the, the life, you know? It was yeah. like I really thought that. Whereas this is about self regeneration, it's about pure mm. life, it's about joy and playfulness in the face of that darkness. And it's also the first piece of art that I've created uh, clean and sober as well, mm -hmm. so that like goes through it. I think mm. it's like the sharpest piece of writing I've done. Because before it was always yeah. that like write, write drunk, edit drunk. <laughs> <laughs> Whereas this was 
<laughs> right clean and sober. An interesting adaptation. <laughs> I see. Yeah, you know? So, yeah, it was, it's just totally different to anything yeah. I've ever done in, in almost every way. I do love that you went through that typical millennial thing of monetizing your hobbies, by the way. It's like, oh, this is good for me. This is nourishing for me and this really helps my soul. Now it needs to... They need to. It needs to give me a, a living wage. Well, fully, um. it makes me feel very. Yeah, it sort of makes me feel uneasy and a bit um, false in a way because, like all the people who taught me, they don't sign their artworks with their individual names. It's all about mm. the collective, the punk rock up the collective. They mm. carve it together, they print it together, mm. they sign it with the collective name. And I tried to take that attitude of like collaboration with different poets and artists. Yeah, and you have that all throughout. There's a constant but sense of collaboration. But it's still, it's my name on it, you know. And so, yes, in some ways, I've become complicit are, in a in an individualistic sort of Western approach to art making. Even though yeah. I'm trying to, and so a lot of this book is actually about complicity, like collective yes. and individual. But I think we're in a time where we're actually talking about that, and I see that as well in, in your book, Maxine, too. But we are actually, I think, in a time in which certainly creative mediums, and particularly younger, um, younger practitioners in that space, are quite interested in the ethics. And, you know, all throughout all throughout Killanova, there is actually an like an engagement with, like, these are for, these are with. And, you know, and I want to come and ask you another question in a minute about that. But um, coming to how decent folk behave for a bit, like, thinking of some of the, the same questions and challenges, Maxine, I mean, like, this is your fourth poetry collection. Do you feel established in your personal protocols and attitudes to how you record, the, how, how you write poetry, not even just thinking about form, but also just thinking about, like, this is an annotation of a year mm. of a new kind of global panic-suffering crisis and how you wrote into that and around that. Um, and also, if, like, there are, you know, there are poems in there about some really very specifically horrific stuff, um, and particularly where it interrogates a lot of um, failures of justice that occurred in, in 2020. How, like, was there, you think, an ethical negotiation throughout that whole process, and where, did you, where do you think you ended up coming through it? Yeah, I think for me, the question was, you know, with these poems, I was very much aware that, you know, as a poet, you're not necessarily aware of your audience. Mm. But for me, some of these poems were written literally, I knew they were going to be published. Yeah. You know, some of them were written in a pressure cooker. You know, I would have a deadline, the newspaper print on a Thursday, and I would get my topic on a Tuesday. So it was, you know, literally. And the versions that appear in here are not necessarily those first versions. Um, that's not, you know, it's maybe half the content of the book. Um, but I was very much, you're, you're hyper aware of your audience because the audience is literally waiting there. You know that it's going gonna, it's gonna to appear in print. And so I think, you know, taking a topic and trying to look at it from all angles, mm. whereas before I may have, um, you know, I think... My previous poetry collections were probably more memoiristic than this book is. There is some, there are some, you know, poems in there that are about my own life, but it was more about what needs to be recorded about this particular moment. Yeah. You know, what is the sentiment out there and how do I capture that and also look at it from my... Firstly, where do I stand on this matter, mm. whether it's, you know, climate change or, or whatever, injustice. Um, and I think, yeah, what was interesting to me was, you know, you publish instantly, you get feedback instantly, mm. you know. So some of the things I wrote about, for example, there's a poet, a poem in there called Communion, mm. which is yeah. about um, uh, basically George Pell. But don't, mm. don't say I said his name here, I'll probably get sued. Um, and I had a, a survivor contact me, you know, the, literally the day it was um, published, you know, write a letter in saying, you know, thank you so much for writing this poem because it's something that, mm. and it's a very short poem and it's just, um, you know, a poem saying, we believe you, you know, yeah. because that's what the sentiment was, was mm. like, how, how could this happen? You know, we're all sitting there waiting for this judgment. And so I think it was that, it was kind of, if I have one take on this issue, what is that take going to be? Mm. And it's not necessarily my take. Sometimes it is, but sometimes it's kind of just trying to work out what needs to be said about this particular moment. Mm. Um, you know, I think with all work, there are, there is no way to make it completely 
ethically, you know, clean, there's always going to be a little bit of, um, you know, no matter how much work you do, but yeah. And certainly that, that kind of do no harm principle yeah. of I don't want to write something that's actually going to cause damage to someone. Mm. Mm. Yeah, unless that person's got Morrison or whatever. <laughs> then it's fine. <laughs> I feel like I can I feel like I can sense where we might be able to redirect this. But you know, it depends on whether you've all voted yet or are you doing that after. Um, I mean that's that serialized responsive because I was I was gonna actually ask a, a sort of a question of both of you because there are elements that feel almost like a kind of Ekphraxis sort of styling in both of the works where it's really like, you know, on, and Omar, there's some poems and um, you, you got my copy over there so I can't necessarily remember them, but there are some poems that seem like they're, they're, they really are just about um, this musing and this, this sort of um, in, reflection on the interrelationship between you and Borneo and your family's history and, you know, um, the, the geography and obviously what you've also identified in terms of how that's changed so radically through climate change and through um, exploitative resource, you know, resource extractions. Um, but it seems like there is throughout both of these, these really quite different, you know, obviously they're quite, stylistically they're quite different, but they feel quite linked in this sort of commitment to a, a sort of, um, just, just like a kind of a, a beautiful poetic recording of something um, that might be deeply, deeply troubling in itself. And like Maxine, what before, you know, like before I ask Omar about that, like I'm particularly interested in how that focus of this collection differed from other works you've done and that that extracts is sort of like I've got a subject, I've got a focus and a target. Mm. How was that, um, you know, and, and I have to, maybe I'm, I'm making an image of this, maybe I'm making a monument of it, maybe I am simply just in the process of witnessing. How did that differ from your conventional mm. poetic practice prior to that point? I mean, I feel like there was an urgency about it. You know, I definitely felt like there were certain moments that happened, um, and this has happened before, but not to this extent, where, you know, things like, um, you know, as I said, the, you know, the US election and actually mm. watching all of this, you know, with 24-hour social media, literally people partying in the streets or, mm. um, you know, watching my kids go off to climate change, you know, and just that image of, empty schools, you know, mm. driving past the schools, like literally the school doors open and these kids are uh, on the street. And so for me, it was kind of, um, there was a real compulsion. I have had that compulsion with some other pieces of work, um, but also wasn't writing, a, similar to Omar, I wasn't writing a book when I wrote these poems. Mm. They were written one by one as a kind of you know, this is this is a moment and I'm going to talk about it. Uh, most of them, you know, as I said, there, there are some work, there's some work in there that's not like that. Um, and so I think in that sense, it was kind of like the process was condensed. Mm. You know, it was like this hot housing of, I need to write this now. This is, and I feel like that's what that whole period felt like for me. Yeah. was just, um, you know, the, everything's turned up a notch, the volume, the colour, mm. the noise, because we're just stuck in one spot, but still witnessing mm. this unfolding. Mm. Now, Ma, how did you, did you have like a process of actually like, selecting, you know, like, oh, I want to write this poem about, I've, I've, I've got a list, I've got to write a poem about Laksa, I've got to write a poem about, you Always. know, like, what? <laughs> 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 this is such a good poem and it will make you want really good Laksa too. But then um, also examine your complicity in the fishing industry. And, <laughs> <laughs> no, no, <laughs> um, no, no, I mean, come on, we're all poets here. We're not, like, let's don't throw us all under the bus, okay? It was... <laughs> Yeah, definitely there was a lot of thought that went into how I arranged it. It's got mm. kind of three very loose movements to it. Like okay. it starts off in the Southeast Asian archipelago mm. and a lot of stories related to family history, to Borneo, mm. to um, the colonial history. And kind of I was trying to reorient the, the gaze a little bit. Like when there's, mm. um, like for instance, I went to a... Uh, an exhibition at the National Gallery that was this retrospective of Indonesian art, and it was all focused on Jakarta and Yogyakarta. And Eastern Indonesia is always kind of forgotten about, seen yeah. as like a cultural backwater. And it's the same with Malaysia. Mm -hmm. 
the focus is always on Kuala Lumpur and the mainland, and Borneo is seen as yeah this this cultural backwater um, where uh, yeah no, nothing of worth is being created, and it, all it's good for really is kind of extraction of uh, resources. Mm -hmm. And you know, the British did that really well, but then the mainland Malaysians also did that and are still doing that very well. Um, and so that was the first kind of section, uh, and the Luxa and everything as well. And then uh, it sort of moved into a section about Australia and the bushfires yep. and, and all of that. And then it kind of moves into the COVID era, but that's a bit of a combination of both really, because it's mm. me trapped in my flat in Queanbeyan, kind of looking out, <laughs> out of the window and wishing that instead of this dull street, it, it was you know the islands or that I could be mm. back on the water or on the, on the reef in Eastern um, Borneo where I was like swimming with the turtles and everything. And, um, and it was purposeful because originally I was going to front load the book with all the stuff about Australia and race relations and politics and bushfires, mm -hmm. stuff that I'd dealt with before. I think because I've, it was like what people were expecting of me and yeah. that it would be too far a leap for an Australian readership, maybe. Um, and so it was kind of there was a fear within me because I'd heard conversations where people had said, oh my God, I can't get this book published in Australia about Indonesia or about Southeast Asia because Australians just don't care about those issues and they have no frame of reference outside of a trip to Bali every now and then uh, or a Bintang t-shirt someone might have brought back for them or the food, you know. Um, and so I was kind of scared to do that because I thought it might alienate people. And then I was like, you know what, fuck that. It's a I'm challenge. It's a cha no, it's a challenge to myself as a writer. Yeah. It's a challenge to readership. Deal with it or don't. That's actually mm. okay. I'm sure my, my publisher is out there is like, oh God. No, no. <laughs> uh, but like, that was kind of what I thought. And I was like, no, this is at the heart of the book. This yeah. idea about like melting borders, the archipelago, islands as bodies, bodies as islands. This is the soul of the book. And I want to put it down immediately, like, like place it there. Yeah. Um, and so. Yeah, it wasn't exactly like a brave act, but it was just something that I, I'd really thought about and then finally made this decision and just surged forward with mm. it. And then even something actually like the Luxo and food, yeah, that was, you know, it's so easy for us as Southeast Asians to, be, to celebrate and to be celebrated for food because it's kind of innocuous. Mm. It seems like it's rinsed of like political connotations yeah, or something. Yeah, they think it's neutral. It's neutral territory. Right, people but... will say, oh... Like, it's an argument for multiculturalism. It's like, oh, well, if we didn't have multiculturalism, we wouldn't have Luxor or Chakwetiao or, you know, Rindang or whatever. And it's like, well, surely it goes deeper than that. Yeah. Also, we are human and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. And so yeah. that was one thing that I really wanted to look into as well because mm. there's um, so many layers beneath that, like, yeah, with the exploitative fishing industry, slave yeah. slavery, exploitation um, of migrant workers and of stateless people in eastern Borneo. Mm. So even something as simple as, like, eating your laksa, um, suddenly you are in ingesting history and yeah. complicity and complexity. Well, as well, I think you spell that out quite beautifully. And, like, yes, you have the really beautiful poem about, you know, you, you've, you've got, like, tons of, like, gorgeous moments of, um, uh, like, this sort of deep cultural love and, and um, entanglement. But, yeah, you know, the book is very interested in making the complications explicit of any, you know, um, like no act is without, without consequence. Um, and I found that really cool. I, I, you know, expected to find some of those images unsettling, but some of the poems, like the one, I, and I can't remember the title of it because the book's over there, but the one about eating um, the turtle egg and about how you, you, you render that moment and kind of... Um, Situated obviously in like a cultural tradition, but then as well negotiate that from your own distance of of um, how you want to be participating. And I thought it was, you know, that that poem. I thought initially I thought it would unsettle me. It stayed with me. It's just one of the most expert movements I think in that whole collection. Oh, thanks. Yeah, it's. Um, I didn't want to. Yeah, it would have felt really false to pretend like I was some custodian of like huge knowledge yeah. about the history and culture of Borneo when it's something that I'm still very much negotiating. And, you know, I mean, I go back there like every year and I'm deeply connected, not just with my family, but with the art scene mm. now. And it's something that fills me with a lot of joy that that's happened in my life in the last 10 years. But at the same time, we all know how complicated those things are. Yeah. You know, the way you interact with culture. Like I go, there's a point in it where I say, I. I I was expecting it to feel like homecoming, but I felt like a tourist. Mm. Or there were certain times when, um, yeah, I felt like an imposter or 
even when reading up on the history of the river as I was going up, mm. I was reading a 1920s British colonial account. And so mm. in a way, it was like I was looking through the eyes of the colonizer at my own land and understanding mm. it in that way. So it was like very, very complicated. While at the same time, I do sometimes feel those very romantic, mystical connections to the land. And so I was trying mm. to capture all of those like different complexities in a book like this. One of my favourite things um, is the way that you wrote about animals as well, and particularly in that front section. And it is such a stark contrast to the, the sort of the clothes, but, um, you know, the turtles and snow leopards and um, uh, and also orangutans and, like, that making visible again yeah. just that, um, that, that destruction and impact of, um, of, of deforestation. And it must have been really hard to write, but you then accompany it with some just truly gorgeous but tragic carvings. I mean, it's incredibly tragic. Yeah. Like, it's my own way of trying to interact with that tradition of the the protest posters and whatnot. But it, again, I keep using this word, like, but I think the idea of being an imposter, like, sort of, and, and mm. is something that I grapple with a lot, and and um, and I try to verbalise it as well. But like, the it would have felt false of me to use, um, firstly, indigenous motifs that people use, like, in the in the wood carvings, um, but also it would have felt false of me to use the type of slogans and imagery that the people who taught me use, because I'm not an activist on the front line over there, you know, but I still wanted to interact with the themes. And so I decided to do it in my own way through couplets of poetry and through very personal mm. family stories. Like, for instance, my, my father, like, there's this little piece of family land, like, right in the middle of the jungle on the border of Sarawak and Sabah, the two states of Malaysian Borneo. And my dad used to go out there and he would read the Quran for hours every morning and an orangutan would come down and sometimes even a family of orangutans would come down and watch him reading the Quran and they just for, for a long time. And then I remember asking my grandma, I was like, oh, you know, the was, it's like that stuck with me for so, what a beautiful thing. And then I was like um, asking my grandma, like, oh, yeah, yeah, the orangutans, they still come there. And she's like, there's, there's no orangutans there anymore. In fact, there's no forest there anymore. You know, it's like it's all been replaced by all palm. Yeah. And it makes me emotional even to talk about yeah. it, you know. But, like, then at the same time, I have seen examples because I, I feel like we have to try and find hope within all of this, as mm. tragic as it may seem. And, I, and I've worked with organisations that are trying to, for example, rebuild the reef mm. in eastern Borneo that's been fish-bombed to pieces using sort of 3D printing technology and stuff. And the, the coral is growing back over it in certain sections. And I have swum with turtles that have come back to the reef for the first time in decades. And, um, and so that fills me with hope on a very, very small scale. At least it gives the possibility that something could happen and that yeah. regeneration is possible. Yeah. Well, on hope, actually, there's a lot of negotiation throughout your collection, particularly where you've got poems that are attending to tragedy and particularly injustice, as 2020 was filled with. Um, how did you try to use poetry explicitly as that kind of, you know, um, as as a kind of a, a, a signal for hope? Obviously, you've talked about how um, the, the function, just the power of being able to say, like, we believe you to um, to victims of, um, you know, child sexual abuse and that, you know, the commission going on, um, the Royal Commission going on through that whole period. But thinking about that now as a collection, not simply just in, um, not simply just in the newspaper, but actually, like, you know, how this now functions as a collection, how do you want 2020 remembered and memorialised and how much of, how much hope do you think is possible in the way in which that was recorded in your book? Yeah, I think for me, hope is, is a really important thing. And um, sometimes, you know, some of the things that I wrote about in this collection, you know, the, the, um, the title, How Decent Folk Behave, is taken from a poem in the collection called Something Sure. And it was written after the you know, death of Hannah Clark and this epi ongoing epidemic of domestic violence in all communities in Australia. And... Um, and I thought, I have to write about this, but what can you possibly write that is hopeful? Yeah. Um, and so what I wrote really was an address of um, a mother to her son, mm. you know, and she, there's a line in the poem where she says, you know, I know you're young and I taught you well how decent folk behave, mm. you know, but when the time comes that you have to, 
you know, defend a woman and be that person that steps in the way or that pulls your mates in line or whatever. You know, here is, here is what your responsibility is. And so I think that my finding of hope was about, um, you know, not necessarily what the, the occurrences or the tragedies or, or you know, some, some of the things in there are actually really, poems in there are actually about really, you know, hopeful events. But, um, yeah, it was this kind of, you know, how can I find a way to actually... Um, inject some kind of instruction. I think also because my work is studied in quite a few schools, I've become hyper aware mm. that there's now this audience of kids in there, you know, really 20 to 24 who've now studied my work. So it's kind of, they become readers, which mm. I never thought, you know, I'd have an audience that much younger than myself. And so I do think about that a lot of, you know, what is needed for this cohort mm -hmm. of readers. Um, and I think there are poems like Fridays, which is about, you know, the power of that Friday strike for climate movement. Um, and there are also, um, there's a poem in there called Wait, which is about navigating the health system in Australia as a black woman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the microaggressions and the misdiagnoses and, the, you know, the people ignoring your, your symptoms and mm -hmm. things like that, um, which I hadn't really um, conceptualised as a poem about the pandemic. Mm. And kind of in looking at it with this material, I then ended up adding a poem which was about, you know, how communities of colour have disproportionately been affected, yeah. you know, by the failures of the health system during the pandemic. Um, and I had someone interview me for a radio show who was a, a health professional in a mm. hospital setting um, who we talked quite a lot about that poem and this this idea that the health provider is neutral, you know, kind mm. of thing. And I guess statistically someone, incredibly untrue, particularly yeah. when we're talking about yeah, exactly as you say, black women in the health system. Yeah. yeah. And so yeah, I guess my way was kind of what can I, you know, I mean, you don't want to write a teachable book as such, but you know, why am I writing this? Well, I'm writing if you know. For certain particular poems, I'm writing to, to testify. You know, it's a testimony, yeah. but it's also so that hopefully someone else doesn't have to go through this or that things change or that someone thinks about this particular thing. And so I think it's probably more than my previous work really thinking about, you know, we're all going to die because Armageddon's here, so what do I want to leave behind? <laughs> you know, yeah. What do I want to say? Yeah. Like kind of relic-making, I guess, of that. Yeah. 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 Did you feel that the commentary that you were making had, like, did you feel that it was um, structured by, you know, like a kind of like a political ideology or was it more so just about, yeah, that, that act of witnessing and kind of just a basic, you know, humanity guiding behind it? Like, did it feel a part of any kind mm. of broader political project for you? I mean, I do feel like my political tendencies are clear through the way I view certain events and things. But there are also poems in here which I never thought I'd write. Mm. You know, there's a poem about the burning of Notre Dame Cathedral mm. because that was this, you know, momentous, this, we all saw this blackened spire teetering mm. and, you know, it talks about the angels on the frieze and, you know, things like that, um, which, you know, is just a, an observational, you know, there's maybe one mm. line in there that's a little bit left-wing. But... um. But, yeah, so I, I, there are definitely pieces in there that I kind of tried to stay out of yeah. as much as possible because I thought this is just such a, you know, and, and, the, and the, you know, the symbolism of at that particular time, you know, the trials that were going on and what's happening mm. in the world and this church just going up in fire and everyone standing there watching um, seemed to be saying something broader. So, yeah, I feel like definitely there is obviously, um, you know, my politics are in the collection, um, but I feel like there are also pieces that took me way out of... Um, and, and sometimes it was kind of, I'm going to write a poem about spring. <laughs> you know, there are a couple of poems, a poem in there called October, which is literally just about what happens, you know, in Melbourne, in nature mm. in October, and those moments of um, just stopping and mm. and you know, which we kind of um, 
you know, this poem called Generation Zoom that talks about that moment where all the cities of the world were empty. And, you know, had these really cheesy images of, like, a choir boy standing in the middle of, you know, wherever, Rome or Venice or whatever, singing in the empty city, you know, and we're all in lockdown. And so, yeah, those kind of... Um, those moments of just stopping and, and mm. looking around at what's happening. I would like to ask both of you to read something, and I'm keeping an eye on the time because we will be going to questions in just a moment. So I was originally, I originally pulled out one I was going to ask you to read that's probably a tiny bit longer. Do you have anything in mind that you would like to read that is maybe not super long, just so we've got enough time for questions for these guys? Um... Doesn't have to okay. be super for, short. For, for a, I might. I'll read a short one. I'll read Fridays because I've mentioned it. Mm -hmm. um, Fridays. On Fridays, our children are bursting train carriages, backpacked full of hope, wielding placards, bedroom made from flattened cornflake boxes, and upcycled tomato steaks. On Fridays. Our children raise melodic voices, meant for playing tag or jump rope, and take to the streets in every city, millions strong and begging us to know. In the empty classrooms, silence echoes round initial etched desks, and lockers left open spill crumpled science notes. On Fridays, our kids are forced to become adults. On the ball court, a lone grey hoodie hangs, abandoned from the hoop. Every week, our children sacrifice one-fifth of their dreams, and on Fridays, they become exactly who we need. Marching with their arms around each other's tiny shoulders and their iPhones held up viral high, they are brave enough to defy instruction sure enough to face the future and smart enough to know their minds, if they save the world or not. On Fridays, our children tried. Can we read Batman? Batman. Yeah. It should be marked. Yeah. It's a poem uh, I wrote in collaboration with a Nigerian poet called Inua Elams, and it's called Fuck Batman. <laughs> and uh, he, 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 envisioned, it's time. <laughs> he envisioned COVID as um, Batman swooping down over Gotham slash London. And so I did the Queen Bee 2.0 uh, version. <laughs> it goes like this. Let me see. I'll see if I can remember it. The truth is. Parts of us welcome the prophet of oblivion, its thousand rapturous faces, the flapping beat of its leathery wings, its messianic cape and accelerant of Armageddon, its balled up breath plummeting down, crumpling the traffic jams of our silence screaming. It was a weight unknown we had always known. The truth is, Parts of us secretly rejoice that we could finally drop our masks, relinquish the facade of civility, and welcome the end of days. The wild children wore pasta necklaces. They hunted with sardine cans beaten into shanks. They streamed toilet paper across the emptied cities. We sat on our windowsills drinking ink, singing lockdown nocturnes, cabin fever dreaming, unscrambling our future from a mess of blinding stars. We searched for patterns and rearranged history. We made jigsaw pictures of places we might never visit again. There is Tamparuli and Mount Kinabalu. There is the bridge that I walked across while making woodcuts for the first time. There is Samporna with yellow and pink coral here are the turtles and their quiet hymns. We grew madder, yet clearer-headed with each day. We laughed and we cried and we laughed again. We chiseled our faces to suit our moods before settling on perverse joker smiles. We melted down all the votive candles we had lit in tribute to our pasts and recast them as clear crayons to create the myths of our tomorrows.
good are these two poets? Okay, well now we get to have question time and I actually was too busy looking at the books before and forgot if it is going to be attended to with microphones, which I believe it shall. No, yes, no. Okay, listen, we're going to work that out. If you've got a question, I'm not sure what you do with it just yet. You go up to the front. You go up to the front. Yeah, you go up to the front. They're, look at that. Oh, they've made it so explicit. We've got one here. We've got one here. Now we're going to kick off um, while you guys are coming up with your questions and making your way to the front. We're going to kick up kick off with a question that we've got from Canberra, uh, library in Canberra, part of our live and local audience. After having written a variety of published poetry, have you noticed an increase in the awareness of how, how your audience will respond to or be receptive of your work when compared to when you were starting out with slam poetry? So I think that's the two of you. Yeah, it's been an interesting response and I definitely am more aware of the fact that it can um, have such different, uh, can trigger such different responses depending on who the audience member is, you know. Like there's been a lot of um, young people of colour and uh, particularly like Muslim, Muslim Australians um, who have come and come up to me and said, oh, it's so amazing to have that visibility and to see my experience reflected in the work and, it, you know, it feels empowering to see that. But then there have been a lot of like older white audience members who will come and say that they had not been able to be privy to that experience in such a direct way, um, and that so instead of the instead of it being like a mirror in some way, it was kind of a window to a world that they knew was very close and like around them all the time, but had not heard articulated in that way. So it was interesting, like we were talking mm -hmm. about yesterday, where it's like the same words, the same performer doing it, but the way that it's received has a completely different effect. And then there's people who are terrified by it, you know, and I kind of love that. Like, um, you know, I was talking to my friend Sarah before about like Mark Latham, you know, he was like, um, he was sending all these all his racist hordes after me and, they were, you know, saying death threats and saying that I needed a bullet in the head and this and that. And um, I've had like various versions of that, you know, many times because like if, you, if your name is Omar bin Musa in Australia and you and you speak your mind or just speak at all, like, you know, there's a sizable segment of the population that's going to re respond in that way. Mm. And so um, there's something very confronting about these types of responses, but at the same time, maybe it means I'm doing something right, because, um, yeah, if, we, if what we're here to do, being on the fringes as poets, is to speak truth to power in some way mm. that we're always saying, then, then maybe it's having the desired effect. Yeah, I think we're the going from slam which I was almost exclusively performing my work many years ago, you know, 12, 13 years ago. I published my first poetry collection in 2007. And with Slam, you see the people you're giving to it to. Mm. It's like it literally, if they're not in the room, they're not hearing your work. Mm. Um, and there's an incredible power to that. You know, people need to turn up, they need to sit down, they need to listen to what you're actually saying. And it was almost difficult to leave something on the shelf so what do you mean? Like, I just leave it there and someone comes in and buys it and I can't talk to them about it. I have a drink afterwards. And, and of course, you let go of that conversation except for events like this. Um, and, yeah, as Omar said, you, your audience expands. You know, all of a sudden you have people reading your work. You know, I had this old guy in his 70s who for a couple of years, I don't know what's happened to him now, but he was coming to every event. You know, it's just like the and biggest he's fans. He's here and you just yeah, called yeah. them old? <laughs> he called himself old, it's oh, fine. Okay, My right. mum's probably in the audience, so she's going to, you know, I'm not calling you old mum. Oh. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it's, you, you know, you get these kind of relationships with mm. readers mm. of your work that you never expected. And also the couple of books I have that are on syllabuses weren't actually written with kids in mind. Yeah. And you now have these te this teenage audience and, and, um, and it just opens whole new conversations that you never thought that you would be having. Mm. Um, so I do kind of, I feel like you can't gauge, you know, you can never yeah. tell what a book's going to do, where it's going to end up, who's going to be reading it. It's tricky because the function of it is like, sometimes I think the function of poetry is to really, it's to challenge people and hopefully make mm. them um, challenge the way they see the world and preconceived notions they have about it and maybe like look at my own prejudices and this and that and, and challenge theirs. Um, and so in that way it's to make the audience uneasy. But then with something like spoken word it's kind of interesting because actually the function of it in some ways is evangelical and yeah. it's that 
many of us feel disempowered in Australia, and so we quite like to get in a room with people who are like-minded mm. and to feel stronger and emboldened at the end of it. Mm. And so oftentimes it is, it's, it's, it's a weird dance between trying to challenge the audience but then yeah. also trying to rally them. Mm. Um, and it took me ages to realise that about spoken word because sometimes mm. that would make me kind of uneasy. I'd be like, man, it's like we all probably come from the same political persuasion mm. and kind of agree with each mm. other. Is this bad poetry? Yeah. And it's like, no, it's just a different type of... Yeah. Poetry, like the effect and the function of it. Mm. Mm. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Is there anybody who would like? Please to don't ask be shy. Them? If anyone has yeah. a question, I, I, I promise they're all nice, interesting people. I'm not, but I'm not the one you're <laughs> asking questions of. So please come up and do so. Okay, well, I've got a backup question while they're working up their courage. Um, we do have someone, but I think it'd be really awkward if I drew attention to her walking up. Um, <laughs> but now it's too late, so we're here. Um, oh, hi, hi. hi. <laughs> Didn't see you there. Hi. Hi. Thanks for such a great talk. I had a question for you, Omar. I was interested in the reception of your work in Borneo and in your hometown there. Yeah, I mean, people are just absolutely stoked um, because... It's not, not as if Borneo is really like on the map in terms of like world art and poetry, and, and I, I was a bit scared at first, um, you know, because I thought that people m might feel as if um, I, I was lacking in legitimacy or like I didn't have a right, but actually it's been completely welcoming, and, and that has affected the way I made the art because a lot of the way people talk about it, there's that whole communal collaborative form of art making, but that's in turn informed by this idea of the kind of the tikar or the woven mat that was traditionally the place where people exchanged stories and, and dried fish and um, dealt with problems. And it was kind of a more like an, a pre-colonial indigenous form of cross-pollination and exchange. And I know that a lot of the people who taught me have been informed by that idea. Um, and so I found it like, in, as opposed to people being gatekeepers, they're very um, inclusive and encouraging and in fact, I'm going back in a month to launch this book with all the people who taught me and with my family as well. Um, so people are like, no, no, people are really, really stoked. And I'm just excited for that um, collaboration and that exchange to, to continue because this is almost just like the beginning of that exploration of it, you know? Beautiful. Thank you. It's a great question. Hello. Hi. I have a question about, in listening to the poems and in some cases reading them as well, how you find form. In other words, does the form emerge from doing the piece of work itself, or do you, or do you take a kind of pre-existing forms or forms that you've used before, or forms perhaps that you've run into in some of the visual work that you've done that inspire the form of the poetry that you're writing? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think for me, um, everything that I've written almost is made to be read out loud. You know, and I think in a way that's why I gravitated towards making poems that were kids' books as well as doing this, um, knowing that they will be read aloud to people. And so for me, that dictates the form. So, you know, for example, you probably can't see, but I'll hold up anyway. So where line breaks are or where indentations are um, often indicates where you're supposed to take a breath, those kinds of things. Um, I, I will, it's almost like, to me, it's like writing a musical score, you know, that you want, I would like the person who's reading it um, to understand how I meant it to be read. It doesn't mean they need to read it that way, but it's about transposing, you know, and the interesting thing with this collection, um, with um, the editing, was, it was the first time it's been sent back to me in editorial form with... Um, uh, so, you know, usually you'll see it in Microsoft Word or whatever, a blank page, and they sent it back to me with the actual lines inserted, you know, so I could see, you know, how many spaces I'd put before each word or, you know, and did you mean four, li four line breaks here or one line break or, you know, that kind of thing. And that was kind of really the moment where I realised it is actually a score, you know, where I'm saying, okay, there's, there's three spaces here, so you're taking a shorter breath, you know, kind of thing. So that's my... I generally write in free verse and generally the way that it's written dictates the form that it actually takes. Um, I think I explore form a lot through trying to read widely and experimentation and trial and error and hopefully a willingness to take risks and mess it up as well. Um, 
I think of my writing processes, it's, it's about trying to find the right, well, the, usually the right word vessel for an emotional or an intellectual risk. And sometimes the seeking of that vessel is like the tricky part of it. So for instance, like the, the novel that I wrote, Here Come the Dogs, originally it was a, a rap song, like about, um, a, about a bushfire. And then it just, it didn't work in that form. And so I was like exploring and trying and testing new things until I realized it was actually, it was prose. And that's why I like having all of these different kind of weapons in my armory and ways of exploring ideas is because sometimes it just doesn't feel like it fits a song or a poem so I can try it in prose form. And then now that I've got the, the visual form, it kind of makes sense because I don't conceive of things um, as, I don't conceive of poems as words or even as stories in words in my head. I conceive of them visually first. It's always sort of like a vision or a picture. And if I'm facing writer's block, I go to a gallery because I'm so, I see things so visually. And so I'm always just trying to convert what I see in my mind's eye or literally with my eyes into words. Um, and so it kind of makes sense that now I'm going straight to the image, like when I, when I create. Yeah, so it's about just being playful, I guess, again. Cool, awesome. Um, okay, well, we had two great questions. That is time for us, so we're going to have to end it there. But um, can uh, you all join me in thanking our incredible panellists today? Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please remember to subscribe and to rate our channel.